We are in a series on 1 Timothy because we want to establish our church. And again, I think that word establish is so key for our church because we're planted. The church has been planted. We just had a three-year anniversary a few weeks ago. The church is planted. But now we need to be established. That means brought to a firm and stable basis. And 1 Timothy is God's, essentially God's instructions for regulating the life of his church. And so if we're going to be established, it's going to be this way, the way God has decided to establish churches. And so I want our church to be brought to a firm and stable basis. I know you do, but most importantly, God is glorified through healthy churches that operate according to his commands. And I think he will add his blessing to those churches. And so we've, we've talked about um, church discipline recently and church discipline in love. Last week we talked about God's desire for the world and attaching our prayers to his desire for the world. Now we're going to talk about the Christian assembly, the corporate worship service. How should we approach the corporate worship service in reverence? Now, that's what we're talking about today, and that's what the next couple of chapters will be talking around. The worship service, leaders in the worship service, servants in the worship service. So read with me 1 Timothy 2, verses 18 through 15 today. The Apostle Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a, learn, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, if there is a passage in the Bible that is hated by culture today, it's this one. Um, and the thing is, you can't accuse me of riding a hobby horse because I'm an expositional preacher, and, and so we're going through, we go through books of the Bible. And that's, that's what's good about being an expositional preacher. You can't avoid the hard things. And you're forced to address the hard things. And so this comes up as the way God would want his church run, as part of the way God would want his church run. Yes, this passage talks about women and men and puts a limitation on what women can do. But really, what's behind this, I think, is, a, is Partly what's behind this passage is there's a tendency, especially in our culture and in Ephesus during this time, to flaunt ourselves. Everything is just, what's another word? Flaunting, just showing, just showing ourselves. Every commercial, which I hardly see commercials anymore, but the women are dressed up and they look like, like they're going to eat you. They're tigers and they're makeup all over their face. It's constantly flaunting themselves. And men, too, are encouraged to just flaunt them, their ideas and themselves and show the world what you have and be yourself. And it's this constant flauntingness. And that is not the way God would have his church run. So I think... I remember I, I talked about this on Wednesday, but, but Mark and Anna lent me a book called uh, The Saving Life of Christ, in which 
the author talks about God, God consciousness versus self-consciousness. And self-consciousness is constantly focused on the self. God consciousness is constantly focused on God and his, his ability, his, his glory. And really, our culture is such a self-conscious culture. Everything is aimed at the self and bringing the self out and exposing and expressing the self. But when we gather for worship, we're there to focus on God and make him the center of attraction and attention and his glory. So in this passage, Paul instructs the men to prioritize holiness and unity over their opinions. He instructs the women to prioritize an appropriate and feminine godliness and good works over their physical beauty. And finally, he puts a limit on the teaching and oversight in the church. That should not be done by women, but men should step up and take the lead in that role. So the main point today is in the corporate worship service, the center of attention must be God's glory and God alone. And what regulates the life of our church is God's original intentions for humanity. So those are my two ideas today. In the worship service, the center of attention must be God and God alone. And the way we regulate our, regulate our church is God's original intentions. We are a colony of heaven on earth. And so the way that we regulate our life as a church is by expressing the priorities of God. So read with me, um, or let's walk through this text together. In verse 8 the Apostle Paul says, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men, our problem is pride. Well, let me put this. A young man is going to take pride in his strength. An older man is going to take pride in his wisdom and his knowledge and his learning. And I believe this passage undercuts that tendency. In Ephesus during this time, and as we saw in verse 1, or chapter 1, these false teachers were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which were only producing speculations rather than stewardship from God. And so there were constant debates and quarrels about their opinions rather than focusing on a holy life before God. And so Paul is undercutting that. And he says, I desire that the men should pray lifting holy hands. Holy is the word hosios in the Greek. And it means, it's not the typical word, word hagios. It's hosios in this, in this um, passage. And it means with reverence and with purity. Unmixed with wicked emotions in your heart. And so the emphasis in this passage is not raising hands, but the holiness of the hands you raise. And it's kind of like what, what Jesus says in, I believe, in the Sermon on the Mount somewhere. He, he talks about, before you go and give your gift to the altar, make sure you're reconciled with your brother. So when you come to the worship service, what is the center of attraction is not our debates or differences of opinion. It's holiness to the Lord. And worship to the Lord. Without anger or quarreling. The problem is. If, if we come to the worship service men. And we make our wisdom and our learning. The center of attraction. Then that's going to engender. Debates and quarrels. Even in the worship service. That could take over. And this passage, passage, passage speaks directly to men and their pride to lay that aside and prioritize God and his glory as a center of attraction in the worship service. One commentator put it like this. He said, angry men who are passionate about being right 
are a primary threat to acceptable worship, as well as to the wider relational dynamics in the Christian home and congregations. For our church, men, and me too, when you point at someone, you're always pointing one finger back at you, right? Or three back at you, however that works. Um, Men, we need to be aware of pride in our church. And we need to make sure that we don't give um, a foothold for Satan to work among us. Our new member, Mark Zumbo, taught me this truth, I think through maybe Austin Sparks, that Satan loves to feed as a roaring lion. Satan loves to feed on what is fleshly in us. Right? What is fleshly in us? Anger, pride. That right there is, the, is Satan's playground. That's what he seeks to devour And if we fill our church up with what is fleshly, he will utterly devour us, as he has done in many other churches. Satan loves to feed on the flesh. So when we come together, let's come together with a proper... Make sure we're coming together with a proper humility and priority of God and his glory, setting our opinions aside especially during the worship service. This does not mean that there is no truths that we hold to and we would not be angry or quarrel about. If somebody diverges from orthodoxy, that is not allowed amongst our midst. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who was crucified, died, and was buried, who descended into hell, or the dead. The third day he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. We gather around those truths. We don't diverge from that. So that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about putting our opinions and debates aside. I'm talking about debatable issues. We put those aside, and in the worship service, we prioritize God and His truth. Also, too, this does not mean that we cannot have discussions and disagreements. We should be able to, not during the worship service, but we should be able to debate afterwards and talk and differ on ideas. And I love doing that. Me and Gary have been going back and forth via text message on things. We're having this debate, and that's good. We're sharpening one another. Who, Who wants to be in a church where no one challenges you on anything? And has these round discussions about the weather. I I want to be challenged. I want to grow. I I, I hunger for doctrine and truth and theology. There's something about being a Christian that makes you hunger for those things. The things of the Lord. And I believe, speaking of Gary, I think Gary models what I'm talking about very well. Not to puff you up, brother. But he's a, he's a man who prioritizes the main thing. Every, t- every time he thinks he got me on a point, he says, but, but anyhow, what are, we pre- what are we studying today? So he doesn't want to divert my mind from what I'm really thinking about. And I appreciate that, brother. You are, I think you're a model of what I'm talking about. Um, and honestly, in this church, I think the men here are models of what the scripture is saying. As I looked at, as I was studying this passage this week, I looked at our church and I said, this is, this is good. We are, we are a church that has truly been created in Christ Jesus. Um, 
that's not to pat ourselves on the back, but it's to say, look at the work of God among you. Well done, good and faithful servants. So, when we come to church, God and God alone gets the glory. And that's why we sing the songs we sing. Okay, we're not here singing autobiography. I don't want to sing about what I want or need. Singing about who God is, what he has done. I thank him, I praise him, I lift him up. I don't want to wake up early on a Sunday morning to sing about myself. I can do that in the shower, right? All right, so, men, be sure that Satan will destroy us if we are a church filled with pride. And men have a tendency to take pride in their knowledge and learning. Now, if men take pride in their knowledge and learning, women take pride or tend to take pride in their physical appearance. And so the Apostle Paul says, likewise also, in verse 9, also the women should adorn themselves with respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. <coughs> women should dress, when we get together in a corporate gathering, should not dress to attract the eyes of other people, but to dress with modesty, not with self-consciousness, but with a God-consciousness. Again, women, you are constantly told to flaunt yourself in our culture, to wear less, And um, to, be, to be a sexual symbol. And that will constantly be thrown at you. But that is not the way we learned Christ. And so Paul is saying, when you come to the worship service, you are not the center of attraction. Just like men and their knowledge is not the center of attraction in the worship service, so women and their bodies or their looks or their physical appearance is not the center of attraction. So, Paul is saying, do not come flaunting yourself into the worship service. Don't dress so as to point to yourself and make yourself the center of attention. Rather, clothe yourself with modesty, with self-control and with good works. So what should take center stage um, in the service, again, is God in his glory, not your beauty. And Paul is talking about, there's some words I wrote down here just to characterize what Paul is talking about. A feminine simplicity, I think is a good way to put it. A, a delicate feminineness, rather than an aggressive extremely done up, extremely tight appearance. A, a discreetness, a non-assertiveness, a, ch a chaste likeness in your dress and in your attitude as well. That's the kind of godly woman that Paul is talking about here. And I think that God smiles upon. In 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4, Peter says, Do not let your adorning, women, be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold and jewelry, the, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. It is very precious to have a gentle and quiet deferential, submissive spirit. There's a beauty in that simplicity that you're called to when you come to the worship service. Again, I look out at the women in our church and I believe the women in our church model this. 
And I want to say to you, well done. I think there is a modesty and a, a chaste likeness in this church that glorifies God. So women continue to model that for the younger generation as they come up. Continue to model what, um, what Paul says here. Model what it is like to be a woman who professes godliness in your dress and in your attitude. And I think we have that in this church. So continue in your humility. And that really is the key that ties those two instructions together for men and women. I believe it's humility. Humility is, is not to be so self-conscious or self-absorbed or to express yourself. But humility seeks to elevate true humility, seeks to elevate God and strives for godliness. Men will take pride in their knowledge. Women will take pride in their beauty. When, you, when we come to the worship, and really in life, put those aside and make God alone the center of attention. Now, do you want to catch the eyes of God or the eyes of men? This is both men and women. I want to catch the attention of God. And I believe there's a way to do that. And that is to seek humility in your life. We are told that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That humility actually draws the attention of God. That's why I want, that's why I strive for humility. And I know there is great pride in me. But I strive and I hunger for humility and I'm seeking humility in my life because I want to draw the attention of God. And in due time, he will exalt you in the ways that he thinks is best. There's a great book on this that I've been listening to by C.J. Mahaney called Humility. And uh, it's on Audible and uh, it's been a great listen. And he brings out this point that humility actually draws the attention of God. So, we come to the worship service, put away pride, put away physical appearance, make God the center of attention, and seek humility. Rather than drawing the eyes of men or other women, draw the eyes of God with your gentleness and your purity, your holiness, men, women, your feminine simplicity, which is beautiful in the eyes of God. Now, how should women learn in the corporate gathering? That's what Paul addresses next. In verse 11, he says, Let women learn quietly with all submissiveness. So how should women learn in the corporate gathering? This, this verse epitomizes it. First, women should learn. So he says, let a woman learn, which is very, very interesting because in the first century, women were not, especially in, in Jewish cultures, women were not allowed to learn. They weren't allowed to be disciples. There's an interesting line in, in um, the Talmud, which is rabbinic literature during this time, which says, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. Isn't that amazing? Better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. But Paul says, let a woman learn. And Jesus had women, not as disciples, but he did appear to a woman, first after his resurrection from the dead. There are women all throughout the Bible and the New Testament who are very key in the life of the early church. And so women, you are called to be disciples, first of all. Don't leave that to the men. Seek to be a disciple. Read the Bible for yourself. Commit yourself to prayer, to following Christ. Let, let a woman be a disciple, in other words. So let a, let a woman learn. They should be learners. Second of all, they should learn quietly. All right, so this is the one that really raises eyebrows. Let a woman learn quietly. Um, 
and this has been, I think, I think the King James Version says silence, which really <laughs> kind of raises. But um, the word quietly, hesukia in the Greek, means to be unobtrusive. It refers to a lack of disturbance. It refers to a tranquility. Um, and it's opposed to a, tur to a turbulent or cavalier attitude. Um, in fact, Paul uses this word in chapter 1 when he says pray. So here's proof that the word hesukia does not mean absolute signs. Paul isn't saying don't utter a word, women. He's not saying that. He's saying let, let them learn with a quiet attitude and demeanor. Um, in verse 2, so pray for all people, for kings and for who all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. That's the word. Esukia. Now Paul is certainly not saying that we may lead peaceful and silent lives. That we may never speak again. That's not the idea. It's, it's the kind of life we are to live. A life without turbulence. Remember when I was preaching this, that we're not to be wide-eyed nationalists or wide-eyed revolutionaries. And so women are not to be cavalier in their learning, like was typical in Ephesus that day where women were thought to be emancipated and they would come in well adorned with their hair done up and they had the same status as men. And so they were felt free to challenge men. And, and Paul is saying that that's an improper attitude for a woman to have. So let her learn with a humble and quiet spirit. Same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Paul says that he aspires, that we should aspire to live quietly and to mind our own affairs. Again, Paul is not saying to live silently without ever speaking, but to live with a quiet humility and tranquility in, in minding our own affairs. And that, I think, is the idea that we're getting at here. It's, it's not an absolute silence, but it is a humble, quiet submission to the leadership of the church. Um, also, you see in 1 Corinthians eleven five that women are actually praying and prophesying in services. So there is an appropriate time for women to even give a word of edification or exhortation, but they should do so with a quiet and submissive attitude, a disposition that refer, that defers to authority. So, women should be disciples, they should be learners, and they should have a feminine, quiet, unobtrusive, non-cavalier disposition in church. Um, now, a limitation is placed on what women should do in the church, how they should minister in the church. In verse 12, Paul says, So let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, but I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Again, this passage is hated highly hated in our culture today and even among many churches today. He says, let a let, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So Paul is, is talking with apostolic authority in this passage. And teaching is what I'm doing now. And exercising authority over a man is what the elders do or what a pastor does in a church. So Paul is talking about the public teaching of the word, which is what I'm doing at this point, and exercising oversight and leadership in the church is what a pastor does. So a woman is not called to be an elder of a church or a pastor of a church. And we've seen today, many in the churches today have just cast this aside and either disregarded Paul or have been so creative 
in their exegesis that they found a way to kind of make this say the opposite of what it does say. Now, the question is this, why? Why does Paul say, I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man? Why is that? Someone tell me. All right. The reason he gives, look in verse 13. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Why? Because Adam was first formed and then Eve. So the reason that Paul limits, or Paul would have men be the elders and leaders and teachers of the church, refers not to some cultural reason, but refers to the created order that reflect God's intentions for male and female. I want to give you a really brief biblical theology of male and female. First of all, understand that as we talk about the limitations of women, understand that male and female are both created equal in the eyes of God. In Genesis 1, verse 27, Paul, our Paul, God creates man and woman. And he creates them equal. And we can see this in the words, So God created that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So who is created in the image of God? Male and female are created in the image of God. However, the woman was created as a helper. In Genesis 2, verse 18... The woman's created as a helper. Let me turn there. Two eighteen. Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so out of the ground he formed the or now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And brought them to the man. But at verse in verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man. He made it into a woman. And brought her to the man. And the man said this is at last bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. So the male and female are created equal in value. But separate in function. Adam was created to be the leader. Woman or Eve was created to be the helper. Now, helper does not mean lesser. It means it's a designation of a supporting role. A helper is a person, I have my definition here, is a person who contributes to the fulfillment of a need or the furtherance of an effort or support or purpose. The word helper in the Hebrew is used of God helping Israel in the Old Testament. And the word helper is used of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Not because the Holy Spirit, for example, is lesser than Jesus Christ, but because he comes along, Jesus, and applies Christ's work to the church. He's in a supporting role. In the same way, women are created as helpers, not because they're lesser, but because they're to come alongside the men in a supporting role and enable them to do the work they're called to do. So that is how God intended it. So God's design for male and female should be reflected in the home, I believe, and in the church. And the reason that men should lead in the church is because the church is meant to reflect God's design for humanity, as read in Genesis 1. And if we're going to be a colony of heaven on earth, we need to be sure to reflect that good design. The second reason he gives is not just creation, not just because God created them male and female, but he also gives the fall as a reason, because Adam was not deceived but Eve, which is perplexing because Adam did eat the fruit. But it seems, it seems 
that whereas Eve was deceived by the snake, it seems that Adam's sin was willful and conscious. There was no deception. It was just a, a defiance of God. That is not a good thing at all. <laughs> and it actually threw the world into quite a bit of chaos. But that is the logic in this passage. Adam was created, woman was created as a helper. And whereas Eve was deceived, Adam was not deceived. His, his sin was not out of deception, but out of willful rebellion and conscious rebellion. So, gosh, Paul does not... Here, let me put it this way. How, how can we respond to this passage before we get into verse 15? You could just outright reject this passage. That's an option. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, for Adam was first formed and then Eve, you could say, well, I just don't agree with that. That is an option for you. But don't expect the Christian church and Christians separately to follow you in that rejection. We believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God and that Paul is teaching God's will for his church. Now, if you, wanna, if you want some background on that, I preached a sermon a, a couple months ago called Why Do We Think the Bible is the Authoritative Word of God? It was part of our Logic of Christianity series. And so, yes, you could. That's an option for you to just reject what Paul says. But don't expect me other Christians or the church at large to follow you in your rejection of Scripture. We believe the Bible is the authoritative Word of God. Secondly, you could argue, try to argue that the passage does not say what I'm saying it says. And you could talk about Philip's daughters who prophesied, even though that wasn't in a church context. You could talk about Deborah. You could talk about all these women. Ultimately, it comes down to verse 13. And I want you to understand this because this is important. As we move on into church, we will not have female elders. We will only have male elders. And I don't mean to say that in some kind of cavalier attitude, but in a way that defers to the authority of God through Scripture. Verse 13. I have never heard a satisfactory answer to that by somebody who says that a woman can be a pastor or a teacher. The reason Paul says, I do not let, permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, has nothing to do with cultural influence, or because that's the way it was done in the first century, but because Adam was first formed and then Eve. So the reason is God's original intention for male and female. Do you understand that? If this passage, and I think that's very clear, that's just very clear. If you can take this passage and you can somehow twist it to mean that women should be teachers and give pastoral oversight, then I think all bets are off hermeneutically. I don't know how you can argue that God's will is not for homosexuality or the transgender agenda. I don't know what about Christ being the only way. You could contextualize all that to the first century. If you could say this, isolate this, and just contextualize this to the first century and saying it doesn't apply to us today, then all bets are off. What about homosexuality? What about Christ being the only way? What about the gospel? You could contextualize yourself right out of Christianity. But we don't preach context. Although context is very important. Context is the key. But the text is the door. Right? So if we're going to be biblical Christians, we have to take the text for what it says. And it is God's will that men should step up and take the spiritual lead in the home and the church. 
Thirdly, with regards to these arguments that women can be pastors and teachers, um, when these women talk, or these men talk, who argue that women should be pastors and teachers, they sound so much like a 21st century Western university-based person explaining the Bible. They don't sound like somebody from Africa. They don't sound like somebody from Asia or Hispanic cultures. They sound like somebody in the West who grew up in the last 50 to 60 years who was influenced by somebody who taught in the university. That's who they sound like. So understand that if, if you're having a hard time understanding why, why would God why would God put this limit on women? It's not because he is it's not because women are not as valuable, they are. It's not because women don't have gifts, they do. But he does have a created order and a plan for male and female. And men should step up and take the lead in the home and the church, and women should joyfully come alongside them in, in submission and enablement of men's leadership. What about that verse that says, all are one in Christ? I thought there was no male or female, slave or free. Understand that equality in value does not erase distinction in role. There is a difference. We can be equal in value, but separate in role. And understand this refers to the context of the worship service. This doesn't mean that you can't homeschool males, women, you can teach or ex and exercise authority over your children. This has nothing to do with children's church or teaching in schools. This refers to the assembled church and corporate prayer and worship and when teaching is given. This refers to the church gathered. And so has nothing to do with, with parenting or higher education. This is how God wants his church to run. Also, this does not mean that women cannot give instruction to men in private settings. If you read in Acts, Aquila and Priscilla came alongside Apollos and taught him the way more accurately. And so Priscilla, being a woman, was actually teaching Apollos the things of God and spiritual things. Church of the Vine and members of this church, we need to embrace this as God's good design for his church. Not as some kind of arbitrary limitation, but isn't it good that men should step up and take the lead and be strong and lead a congregation? And it wouldn't it, isn't it beautiful when women have an appropriate godly timidity and Humility that defers and in even encourages men to take the lead and step up. There are so many passive men in the world today, spiritually passive, not taking the lead in the home. And, and it's the women who constantly have to rise up. And these things ought not to be. The men should step up in the church and the home and lead the family to fear and love God. In our, and the reason this flies in the face of culture today is because in our culture, the men have been feminized and the women are told that marriage, that having children, submitting to a husband's leadership is actually oppressive and it holds you back and it keeps you down. I don't believe that for a second. I believe that women, as you raise children, you are doing the work of God. You're, you are raising a child to fear and love the Lord. Be fruitful and multiply. I was just talking to Kaylin earlier. I pray that our generation raises up children to fear and love God so that 
not just our nation, but the world can become Christianized by the raising of godly children. Who knows what the Lord will do through family discipleship? Men, don't be spiritually passive. I'm going to talk to you next week about striving for ministry. Men, this doesn't just speak to women and what they can't do. This speaks to you and what you should do first in the home and even perhaps in the church. Don't be spiritually passive. I have a book out there. There's a little booklet on the table um, called How Women Can Flourish in the Church. And we want women to flourish in the church. Just because women should not be pastors and teachers doesn't mean that we don't want women to flourish. We do. And I think women can serve. Darcel has been a great secretary for us. And she has led the fellowship team. And now... Nidia has been a Nidia has done so much for me and for this church, but she she does everything as far as book work goes and finances in this church. Jasmine's taking over the fellowship team. So women are a part of the ministry of this church, but it's just a matter of the elders' role in preaching and teaching and exercising oversight that the Lord wants men to step up and take the lead in that. Let me, let me close this out here, talking about verse 15 really briefly. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. <laughs> this is a very difficult passage. And I, I don't presume to... As you can tell, I'm wrestling with this passage because it's very difficult. Um, there are a lot of subtleties in this passage that I haven't brought out. But she will be saved through childbearing. There are three things this could mean. Number one, that means that a woman is justified by bearing children and given salvation by bearing children. Now, do you think that's what the Apostle Paul means? I absolutely do not think so. It's by grace you are saved through faith. That's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So, Paul constantly talked about how salvation is by grace through faith. And he's the one who wrote, There is no more Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. So, I think we can put that to the side and say this is not referred to being justified by faith. What it could refer to is Eve. And just as Eve, by childbearing, in Genesis 3.15 it says that um, your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. And so through Eve's childbearing, the Messiah came and crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. That's a possible interpretation. The third interpretation, I think probably the most likely, if I could articulate it well is that this refers to the God-ordained role of women in God's stream of redemption. She will be saved by childbearing, not in the sense that she's justified by childbearing, but in the sense that she, she continues in perseverance and in God's will by taking on and embracing that God-given role typified by childbearing. And this is not just childbearing, but it's continuing in God's will through faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So there's a proper order for salvation for men and for women. Men are to be leaders in the stream of redemption. Women are to enable that leadership in the stream of redemption. And Paul is using childbearing as a way that typifies the feminine role for the male and female relationship. 
Ultimately, though, ultimately, the male and female relationship should reflect Christ in the church. And I really believe that that's what this is all about. As Christ submitted to the Father, so the woman submits to the husband. And as Christ died a self-sacrificial death for his bride, the church, so women, so men are to take the lead through self-sacrificial leadership, being willing to die for their bride. I think that's ultimately what is in play here. It is, it is God's expression of Christ's relationship to himself through male and female in the church. So if you have questions about this, I would love to talk to you. If you would like more explanation, I'm here for you. There is a book in the back that says how women can thrive in the church today. Understand that I am not preaching these things out of some American traditionalism. We should go back to the way things were. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with God's intentions as reflected in the created order. Understand that. Men, I'm coming after you next week. I want you to step up and strive to be qualified. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I come before you uh, thanking you for your word. If some things seem difficult, Lord, I ask that you would uh, give us understanding. If these things seem offensive, teach us to submit to your will. Lord, we do thank you for who you are and what you've done. And we commit the rest of this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and power and majesty and dominion now before all time and forevermore. Amen. Amen. If anyone likes special prayer, I would love to pray with you. God bless you.